welcome back to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientist. From immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering and much more. So if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm so delighted to be sponsored by a wonderful Irish company called Biosciences Limited, who are the main Thermo Fisher distributors in Ireland. And I'm so grateful to them for coming on board and sponsoring this podcast. Today, I'm chatting to Prof. Marina Lynch, Professor of Cellular Neuroscience in Trinity College, Dublin. So Marina's research focuses on the underlying causes of age-related neuroinflammation in the brain, with a specific focus on Alzheimer's disease. And as a previous director of the Trinity Institute of Neuroscience, Marina has been the recipient of many awards, including the Irish Society for Immunology Medal last year. And so, um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Marina. I'm looking forward to chatting to you today. No bother at all, Megan. Glad to meet you. Um, so I suppose we'll start in. Um, I kind of want to go back and talk about, you know, what Marina Lynch was like in school and kind of were you interested in science or did you have other careers in mind? Um, no, I had no other career in mind, mostly because science was my strong subject. I was good at science. I was good at maths and really had very little um, skill when it came to music or the arts and uh, not a linguist by any stretch of the imagination. So it was science all the way for me. And did you, when you were like doing your leave search, did you do many science subjects to go on for the CEO? Um, well, no. Now, this is a very long time ago, let me remind you. So <laughs> at the time, the only thing that was available was a thing called combined physics and chemistry, which I did. And with regard to the CAO, it didn't exist at the time. I, my recollection is that you just applied to the different colleges and you got a response to indicate that you were or were not accepted. It wasn't a particularly tricky business in those days. And, and I, I know that you went to the same secondary school that I went to, the Bower, which is a bit mad as well. Clean O'Farley made yes. that link. And how did you find that time there? And well, I was a boarder there now and maybe you were not. No. Um, I, I, I didn't like it. Oh, really? <laughs> No, no, not really. Um, it was, I suppose, it was as good as it could be at the time, but I wanted to be at home. And so I missed home. And uh, yeah, I wasn't, I didn't really like school very much at all. Did you, did you get home much or was it just over the weekend and stuff? Oh, no, we didn't. We were locked in for um, in the first term until Halloween. But that didn't even, we didn't even get home in, at Halloween in the first few years. So the first time I got home was at Christmas in my first and second year, maybe. Maybe in third year we got to go home at Halloween, although I'm not even certain about that. We had what was called free days at school. So free days weren't all that free, but um, we could dress in our normal clothes instead of in, um, in uniform. And I think we were allowed to watch television and play sports and whatever. But it, yeah, it wasn't that much fun. So three months in school and I arrived home the first time at Christmas and I had grown about four inches and people barely knew who I was, I think. <laughs> it was an odd experience um, and no one would ever imagine what it's like now. It's nothing like uh, boarding school in the last 10 years when people got home all the time. So no, very different. And did you stay there for the full six years? Yeah. Five. Yeah. So I went there when I was 12 and I left when I was 17. And yeah, so the first three years were horrible and the second two years were less horrible. Oh, no. The best day of the whole lot was when I left. 
oh god <laughs> this is not an advertisement for it the power at all <laughs> it's not the power it was me and I it was very you see I, I, I found it very difficult to be um uh as as good as you should be and um you know to do the things that you were supposed to do and to like the things you were supposed to like so it didn't come that easily to me so I had to act pretty much all the time so it was a bit yeah and, and did do you have any siblings like were they also in boarding school um well yes we were all in boarding school um I had three siblings but I have two now and we were all in boarding school so my brothers went to Ross Gray and my sister went to the bar but she was six years younger than me so she only began when I left. Okay so you didn't ha- even have that you know you didn't have your sister there? No no not, no no didn't have her there. Oh I had plenty of friends there but mm. I, it was oh gosh it was the nuns really. <laughs> right I shouldn't really be saying this should I? that's all right (laughs) and so I suppose from kind of your Bauer days then you went and did your uh, undergrad that was an NUIG was it yes I went to Galway um, and I'm not going to explain why it wasn't the best uh, reason in the world uh, but I went in any event and I had a great time in Galway it was really enjoyable so I studied physiology and uh, there were only two of us in the final year in physiology because it wasn't considered to be a, a kind of standard subject um, and then I my plan was to leave but I had to have um, surgery on my knee and I uh, had it in Galway and I couldn't really leave so I did a master's by, um, by thesis and then I left Galway eventually and I, I was there for five years and I went to Trinity to do a PhD. And from there, I went to uh, London, to King's College in London. And I was there for two years. And then, I, as a postdoc, mm. then I, that was a great experience, I have to say. Um, from there, I went to Mill Hill, and I was there for 10 or so. No, yes, about 10 years. Then came back to Trinity. So it was, yeah, it was. But I was never in the US, for example. Mm. At the time, it was considered that the UK was as good as, if not better than the US. And uh, maybe Europe would have been also very good. But um, I got, got good positions in the UK. So that's why I stayed there. And like, you know, when you were doing your master's and stuff and before you started the PhD, was this something that you'd wanted to do or was it kind of how it kind of came about? No, well, I always, I always wanted to do research as, all, as long as I can remember. I, re, I was very keen on understanding why things worked. So my dad was a vet and so I used to, to go out with him quite a lot. And I remember even from a very early age, I'd be asking him what was wrong with this animal and what, how you were going to treat the animal and what the drugs did and so on. So I always had an interest in that without realizing, I suppose, until later exactly what it was that, that fired me up. Um, so, yeah, I think that when I realized it was possible to do a PhD, although there were very, very few positions available at the time, I um, thought, well, this is really what I want to do. You know, so uh, the master's I only did because I was in hospital quite a lot at the time and um, or, you know, not not in great shape. And I didn't think it was going to be a possibility to do a PhD at the time. So I managed to get that sorted out and then finish the master's because why not finish it? (laughs) And 
and then do my PhD. I, this is kind of a question I ask um, a lot of people that come on the podcast, you know, is there any particular mentor or person who would have encouraged you, you know, throughout either in school or, or in college, you know, to, to take the leap and, and do the PhD? Well, my, the, the teachers that I liked best in school, and there were two really, really good teachers, the maths teacher and the science teacher. I really loved both of those. And now I'm not sure whether it's because I was better at those subjects than at others, but, uh, you know, I really loved those two teachers. Now, they never encouraged me particularly to think about a PhD. I don't think that was, that was spoken about at all. Um, but then um, in college, I suppose, I met people that were doing research that were a couple of years ahead of me. And I knew um, from what they said to me, what was involved and whatever, and it appealed to me greatly. So I think once I got to college and started to, to have a bit of sense, I suppose, and listen to people, I realized that this was something that I definitely did want to do. And, and did you enjoy the PhD? Is it kind of something you look back on and you have fond memories of or was it stressful? Um, well, my supervisor was a sort of a, a strange um, person. I enjoyed the research greatly. And I think that, that uh, yeah, even though it was difficult and there was very little money for consumables and the like, and the, the mentorship wasn't brilliant. But at the same time, I learned a huge amount and, and at the time, this was common enough. You know, the people of my, my era wouldn't necessarily have got the same level of supervision as, as students get now. Um, we were left a lot to our own devices, I think. And we had to solve a lot of our own problems. Um, but, you know, that I think was very good training in the end. So did I enjoy the PhD? I absolutely loved being in Trinity. I loved the research um, I uh, had really good um, colleagues and had great times with my colleagues. Some people in the department were really, really good to me. Um, the supervision was appalling, I think, fair to say. Um, but uh, the good side of that was that I, I learned a great deal, you know, and my colleagues were brilliant and we helped each other quite a bit, I think. And was there many other people in your lab at the time? Um, I, I know I was the only one okay. in that particular lab, um, but there were others in other labs. But mm. you see, at the time, the numbers were very small. I think there may only have been three people in physiology doing PhDs at the time. There could have been a couple of medics that dipped in and out and ultimately either got MDs or PhDs, but they weren't present all the time. But this was common enough. There were very, very small numbers of PhD students around. Um, and I suppose it was because there wasn't much money for research would have been one thing. Um, but, you know, it just, it just wasn't the case that there were very many people around. It's probably, probably better in a way, though, because you kind of got to, you know, advice and and friendships with other people in other areas and not just solely focused on your topic you know yeah yeah that was really good that's part of it because you knew that people were in the same boat as yourself and they really would help you out a lot I mean one of the things that I had to do was to deal with what would now be described as I suppose large data sets but at the time we never had such a term but I got great help from people in statistics and in computer science at the time 
and they gave so willingly of their time and that was a very helpful thing so and and of course i had to learn all this statistical analysis by myself i had a really very poor background in statistics it wasn't a subject per se at the time so i just had to learn it on the the job, as it were, and um, got really, really good help from my colleagues who were in these departments. It just, I remember being, being in the uh, computer department at night, and this chap was there helping me. You know, he was just there to be helpful, and it was just so good, you know. I mean, he, he had no interest whatsoever in, in what I was doing, none. Um, so he was just being so helpful and just decent, you know. So that was great. But the whole experience of the PhD, with the exception of, of that one thing that I mentioned earlier, which I won't harp on about, um, um, the supervision was great. And from then, then you went to, to London. And was that like a big move? Were you kind of anxious or were you looking at it as kind of a big adventure? Well, both. It was it was a huge move. So so first, it was obvious that that was what was going to have to happen because there were no jobs in Ireland and no postdocs. So, um, but in any event, I wanted to continue research. But but I, you know, I was aware that Ireland didn't offer the opportunities that I wanted. So I went to London and I had uh, three interviews and uh, I got two offers. Of those three, and well, I got three offers, but one I ruled out in, immediately. So there were, I had to choose between two, and I went to uh, King's College in London, um, which is on the Strand, a fantastic location. I was really fired up by the um, ideas that the my supervisor, who was fantastic, had. Um, there was great buzz in the place. There were several people doing PhDs, and it was just. Uh, big, big change from, from what I had experienced in Trinity um, in, in many respects. Now, obviously, the help that you get from your colleagues would be different in a situation like that. And just the modus operandi was a bit different, but at the same time, I learned a huge amount. So, um, and it was a great location as well as everything else, right in the middle of theatre land. Mm. Um, so it was, it was a fantastic place to do my, my postdoc training, the first lot of my postdoc training really loved it there. And was that kind of in neuroscience or when did you find that field? So that that position was um, to try and figure out uh, the impact of alcohol on the brain. So there were uh, several different people looking at it from different angles. And that was one of the great things about it there as well, because we all had, had projects that had the same ultimate goal, but there were extremely separate projects. So mine was designed to look at the uh, effect on neurotransmitter uh, function. And this was related to, to behavioral function, I suppose. So this was the first um, time that I, I did something that really was going to be relevant to what I've ended up doing. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so I was, was focused at the time on neuronal function and uh, learned lots of new techniques and interacted with lots of people from just clinic, not just preclinical, but clinical areas as well. That was, that was really very, very good. So altogether, a great experience in King's College. And then you spent another few years in, in England. Yeah. So uh, altogether, I was in England for 13 years. So okay. I was 
just over two years in King's College when I got an offer in um, the Medical Research Council headquarters, as it was in Mill Hill. What, what actually happened in King's was that we made a very significant discovery about um, what happened to uh, neurons or nerve cells when they were exposed to alcohol for a period of time. And we were able to identify a very significant change that altered the neuronal function that could in fact end up killing neurons. And so we got a very good publication from that. And I think it was on the back of that that I was I got the offer in Mill Hill. So my job in Mill Hill, which was the MRC headquarters that I mentioned, was to marry the experience that I had with the expertise in the lab, which was all related to electrophysiology. So I was supposed to be the kind of biochemical or neurochemical arm of the operation up there. So I had a carte blanche. I could literally do whatever I liked as long as it it sounded sensible and it linked in with the work. So the work there in that group was to try and understand how neurons are able to change their function in response to an experience. So without this ability, people will die. Well, animals in particular will die because they have to learn from their experience. And so it's all to do with learning and memory. And so the electrophysiology people there were working on a a plasticity in neurons that was described as long-term potentiation. So described a change in the neurons as a result of experience, which they felt was the underpinning of learning and memory. And it turns out that it was really quite an important um, concept at the time and and really did uh, improve our understanding of how memories are laid down. But my part of the job was to take brains after this experience of long-term potentiation um, was undertaken and then do analysis on that to see if I could find changes in transmitter properties. And so a bunch of us worked together on this and actually made good progress and quite a lot of controversial findings that made things very lively at meetings. And uh, yeah, and it was great. But at the time, because of the controversial findings, I was invited to meetings, often would have been the only woman speaking at a meeting. And uh, yeah, often had to deal with quite a bit of, of, I suppose, abuse would be a little bit of an overstatement, but certainly not very nice reception from time to time. And like, you know, when you're talking about controversial findings, like, like because they were going against the grain at the time. Yeah, well, this, this thing, that long-term potentiation that I described to you there, the, the idea that was out there and just really, it really developed over a few years. And in my view, it would now be described as groupthink. Everybody decided that the reason why this long-term potentiation occurred was because of changes in the postsynaptic side of the neuron. The transmitter release took place, that the, the transmitter linked up with the neighboring cell, and the neighboring cell changed. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, you had a consolidated change in the brain, which could explain how something um, like an event could lay down a long-term memory. That was the idea. But what I discovered was that it was transmitter release that was the first change 
very likely, and that this contributed to the change that was occurring postsynaptically. And so I was, was arguing that it was the other side of the synapse that we should be at. And this angered a great number of people, many middle-aged men among them, and I was only a young one at the time. So, yeah, so these, these, thought, these men often thought that this little whippersnapper from Ireland, well, not a little whippersnapper, I've never been a little one, but a big whippersnapper from Ireland was coming over telling them what's what, and there was an awful lot of annoyance for a few years. So that was one controversial thing. Um, and then the second controversial thing was that we, in my group, the group that I was in, we were saying, well, do you know, it makes absolutely no sense that a change will take place on the presynaptic side of the neuron, on the postsynaptic side of the neuron, and that ongoing communication between the two sides won't continue. So we argued there has to be something that enables the communication between these two sides of the synapse to continue. Otherwise, we felt that the effect would be lost and that at the time would would mean that the um, memory would be lost. So we, we started to consider what factors might be released from the postsynaptic side of the neuron to impact on the presynaptic. And we came up with this um, idea that it was an unsaturated fatty acid. And we said there's a retrograde messenger called arachidonic acid. Well, that caused total mayhem because people were saying that's just a total load of nonsense. But actually, oddly enough, that has never, ever been properly refuted. I mean, there were people arguing against it because they didn't like the sound of it. But ultimately... It was accepted. And uh, yeah, so that caused a huge stir at the time. So we had plenty of, plenty of excitement like that in the group. And it was really exciting times, actually. We loved the going to meetings and putting out these um, ideas. And yeah, and arguments would last for days at meetings about these things. It's just mostly very good, very good spirited stuff. Very good. Yeah, like it, it sounds like you kind of rose to it. Yeah, whenever it was necessary, I used to just say, well, you know, I'm only a simple Irish girl. What would I know about anything, you know? <laughs> and that, that would disarm people. And, and at least then I'd, I'd put up with less abuse. That is good. And, and, and also kind of, I'm just wondering, like, you know, when you're talking about these kind of events that can consolidate memory, like how did you model that? Was that uh, mouse models? Well, yes, it was all mouse models. So, well, rat and mouse, actually. So there, there were people that were looking at behaviour and there were behavioural tests in, in mice and rats at the time that uh, could be done that would assess their ability to learn, the animal's ability to learn, and the animal's ability to remember. So on the one hand, we had these behavioural scientists doing this analysis. On the other hand, we had the electrophysiology people doing their analysis of the changes at the cell or at the cell population level. The, I suppose the biggest advances came when the two sides understood that certain drugs were able to block memory in both instances. So specifically, one of the big findings at the time was that glutamate transmission, that glutamate was my, my favorite transmitter at the time. And so what I was looking at was the change in transmission of glutamate or release of glutamate. And others were looking at glutamate receptors on the postsynaptic side. So we, with the help of others, we found that this inhibitor of 
glutamate receptor activation would block LTP. And at the same time, the behavioral people found that the very same drug would block behavioral uh, performance in these tasks that, that told us about memory and learning. And so bit by bit, the two fields merged and, uh, you know, multiple experiments were done to ask the question, is long-term potentiation really a biological substrate for memory and learning? Is it truly the case that this has to happen before memories are laid down and before learning can be achieved? And I suppose, very simply put, the answer turned out to be yes. Now, it's not just that, but that's a big part of the story, I think. And from there then, kind of where did the neuroinflammation and Alzheimer's disease and that research come into it? Was that before you moved to Trinity or when you moved back? So when I, when I was in um, when I was in Mill Hill, as I said to you, I had a carte blanche really. And I decided that one of the things that might be really interesting to look at, again, trying to get a little bit more information about the link between behaviour and electrophysiology and the biochemical analysis that I was doing, I thought to myself, well, you know, old people lose their memories to an extent, at least. Um, I wonder what the story is in aged animals. So I set up a collaboration with somebody, believe it or not, at the time in Belgium, which seems completely crazy. But uh, I went to Belgium and collected brains from aged animals and came back and started doing analysis on those brains and found things that linked nicely with what we had been working on. And one was that transmitter release was markedly decreased in these brains. And the second was that uh, this retrograde messenger that we found, arachidonic acid, was diminished to a huge extent in aged compared with young brains. And it turns out arachidonic acid, which is, is part of the cell membrane, is replaced by less unsaturated fatty acids. And so the membranes get all stiff and miserable. And so uh, function is impaired when the, cell, when the membrane of the cell is nice and fluid. The, all proteins in the membrane start to be compromised in some way or another. And so function is compromised. And so that was the start of my my investigations, I suppose, into what happens with age. So then I asked the question, well, why is it that we have fewer unsaturated fatty acids in the brains of aged animals? And the most likely explanation would be that oxidative changes take place. So I started to investigate that. And then I asked, why would oxidative changes be triggered? And I was thinking that one of the things that might do that would be an inflammatory type environment. And that's how I made the link. So it was age first, then looking at the membranes, identifying oxidative changes were probably responsible for the membrane uh, changes, and then looking at the potential of neuroinflammatory uh, agents to trigger that entire response. And that's, that's where I started. So the inflammatory thing didn't, didn't start until I got to Dublin, mm. but I started the age-related work just about before I left Mill Hill. So I suppose kind of leading on from that, maybe kind of give me an overview of, you know, the, you know, the field of neuroinflammation and then kind of where your research then ties into it. I know you focus a lot on microglia and, and then kind of how they dysfunction maybe in Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. So it's now accepted as an absolute that neuroinflammation is part of the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease. So we know that, for example, 
there, there are polymorphisms in genes that increase the risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. And when you look at proteins that are encoded by these genes, most of them are related to the inflammatory process in some way or another, or immune processes. So that discovery was made um, in about 2014 or thereabouts. Um, so it was at this point that people accepted that neuroinflammation really did contribute to the triggering of the disease and wasn't just a consequence of other changes that took place during the disease. Now, prior to that, um, people were saying that the first issue is that you've got a buildup of amyloid and that amyloid destroys the neurons. So very simply put, that was what the story was. And there was really very little interest in trying to figure out whether there were other cells involved in the problems that arose ultimately in neurons. And, and the powers that be at the time would have argued that all other changes were as a consequence of the neuronal problems that occurred. But that, that didn't, that change in the acceptance of neuroinflammation as being a true problem that triggered the disease or partly triggered the disease was, is, is relatively new. And the cells that are responsible are the microglial cells. So that's why microglia are at the core of the investigations there. But so with regard to microglia, so what microglia do is that they survey the brain and they survey it to find out if there's any damage to the brain. So a real good example of a role of microglia is if a person has a bleed, a stroke or damage, a trauma to the brain, what happens is that the microglia sniff around that area realize there's some damage, and as a result of that, they are triggered into action. So what microglia do then when they're triggered into action? They become activated, and their whole objective is to get rid of the damage. So the cells are phagocytes. That means that they engulf particles that shouldn't be there, which might be bits of cells that have broken down because of the damage, or they will engulf the hemoglobin, for example. Anything that shouldn't be there, they will try their best to engulf it. And the cells have to be activated in order for that to happen. But the problem is that when the cells are activated, they spew out inflammatory molecules and oxidative molecules, and that, if it's uncontrolled, can cause terrible problems, additional problems. And so under normal circumstances, if there's a small bit of damage to the brain, the microglia go in, clear up the damage, and then become um, deactivated, I suppose, is the best way. They come back to their normal state and continue surveying the brain looking for other damage. Now, the, the likelihood is that what happens in uh, neurological diseases like Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease, for example, is that the microglia become overactivated and they forget or are unable to return to their resting state after they've responded to the injury or the insult. So what we've been looking at most recently is at the possibility that the problem with microglia or part of the problem with microglia in Alzheimer's disease is they become exhausted and they're no longer able to phagocytose the damaged tissue. For example, in, in um, Alzheimer's, as you know, you lose neurons and the neurons uh, disintegrate, they're damaged, they're apoptotic or they're necrotic and the uh, microglial cells have to 
um, to engulf the particles that are left behind, the debris that's left behind, otherwise further damage will occur. Now, it turns out that the, the microglia and Alzheimer's disease aren't really good at phagocytosing, and we don't understand the reason why. So for the past couple of years, we've been looking at the possibility that they're exhausted because their metabolism has changed. And so we've found that microglia from aged animals and from um, an animal model of Alzheimer's disease use glycolysis rather than glycolysis and oxidative metabolism. So the glycolysis is upregulated. And so uh, they get very little ATP when they do glycolysis. That means their energy levels are a little bit compromised. And we think that that may well be an explanation or a part explanation why the cells don't function as well as they should. And sorry, just to kind of link in, how do microglia then interact with the beta amyloid? Or, you know, is that they, their job is to engulf them as well, but they're not doing that? No. So the, this is a bit of a roundabout story because amyloid beta um, the type that forms those plaques that are, are common in Alzheimer's disease, that amyloid actually interacts and activates microglial cells. So it binds to a many, many different proteins um, on the cell surface of microglia. And it's not clear exactly which, which of those acts as the receptor that causes the problem. Is it a combination of all or is it one or more? We are not really sure about that. But in the first instance, amyloid activates all cells, including microglia. And the microglia then become activated and they will hopefully uh, engulf the small amounts of soluble amyloid that are hanging around, let's say, at the beginning of um, Alzheimer's disease. Now, one of the things about the amyloid that's produced in, um, in Alzheimer's disease, it's an extremely sticky molecule. It has 42 amino acids, but it's extremely sticky. And what happens is that it coalesces with other molecules that are the same, and bit by bit, you get a fibrille formed. And then the fibril becomes more solid and eventually you get a plaque formed. And, it, it, you know, microglia with the best will in the world would not be able to phagocytose a plaque because the plaque becomes this um, big amorphous body. Now, it turns out that if you look at a section of the brain of an individual with Alzheimer's disease, you will see that the plaques are surrounded by microglia. But if you look at the um, shape of the microglia, the shape suggests that they are that, that they've become activated, but they're no longer able to phagocytose. So it could be that they're overactivated. We're not really sure about that yet, but certainly they fail to phagocytose. And so we have a number of different issues here. You know, if we could stop the amyloid. Activating the cells, would that be helpful? We don't know, but we expect that it would. Is there any way that we can increase the, the ability of the cells to become more phagocytic? Would that be good? I suspect it would, but we don't know how to do it. Is there any way that you would be able to make a microglial cell eat away at a plaque? Or would that even be a good idea? Some people think that the plaques are harmless, actually, and it is the uh, fibrillar forms or the small A-beta forms, amyloid forms, that are the problem that cause the damage to neurons and to other cells, and that actually the plaque is um, an amorphous mass that doesn't do any further damage, and that it's surrounded by microglia and also astrocytes, and that that 
coating by cells also keeps it um, from causing further damage. We're, th th these are questions that we really need to, to get to the bottom of. But it looks likely that at least some of those um, suggestions are correct. Yeah, so it's kind of like a bit of a vicious cycle because, you know, you've got these amyloid beta that's, you know, affecting neuronal function and, and damaging them, but then at the same time activating microglia so that they can't clear up the debris. Or th so you're interested then in the metabolism side of it. And would that be a thing that you would be interested in targeting the metabolism of the microglia to switch them off or dampen them down? Well, yes, we're trying to do that. So, so, so we're, we're looking at a few different agents that might be able to modulate a metabolism. And what we've found so far is an agent that's able to decrease glycolysis in microglia, but it does so in vitro. In, so if you prepare cells and incubate them with something like amyloid to activate the, the cells um, and include this particular molecule, we are able to reduce the glycolysis and increase oxidative metabolism. But that hasn't worked so far in vivo. So we need to try and figure out what's the reason for that. Is it something as simple as the dose, the way that we give it to the animals? Is there some other reason? Are we choosing animals at the wrong age? Should we be looking at earlier stages in the, the uh, pathology, etc. So we've a lot to do um, with regard to that. And, and that's going to be the focus of attention now for the next few years. It's actually, so just to, to um, wheel back a tiny little bit, I believe myself that one of the earliest changes that takes place in the brain is neuroinflammation excessive neuroinflammation. Now, whether this is something that occurs at the same time as the switch in metabolism in microglia, we don't really know that. What we know is that the two occur together late in the disease. And even at middle age, we see the two occurring together. And anytime you have one change, generally speaking, it looks to us like you have the other change. But we haven't looked at very, very early stages to find out which happens first. Is it that you get inappropriate activation of microglia that then causes the change in metabolism or is it the other way around and how are these linked with microglial function because after all the key thing is to make sure that the function is maintained because if we could maintain microglial function i don't think we would really have anything like as big a problem as we do at the moment and, and that's kind of a question i was going to ask you but i think you've kind of touched it there in that if you're looking at Alzheimer's disease model, but with people who are just getting older and don't have Alzheimer's, do you see these changes as well? So, so let me start by um, talking about humans with Alzheimer's disease and humans that are just old. Mm. The huge difference between them. Now, it may well be the case that you have amyloid buildup in both, but in, in uh, humans that are old, you do get changes that are uh, similar. For example, the membranes that I mentioned to you earlier um, do change. So the membranes change from like being nice fluid membranes to less fluid membranes. And so function is altered. And that happens in both people that are old and people with Alzheimer's but to a greater extent in individuals with Alzheimer's. You do get a change in the ability of neurons to transmit signals to each other in age, and it's much worse in Alzheimer's. What's different between the two is that you get minimal cell death in aged individuals. There is some, but it's not very much. In Alzheimer's, you get significant cell death. And when I'm saying cell death, I'm talking about neurons. Neurons die. 
in Alzheimer's disease in different areas. So with regard to the pathology, as I said, you can have Alzheimer's in, in aged individuals, you can have um, evidence of amyloid buildup, but it's much greater by and large in individuals with Alzheimer's disease. But there are other features of Alzheimer's that you don't see to, to the same extent. For example, tau is another protein that accumulates in the brains of Alzheimer's individuals. That's not something that happens in just older individuals to anything like that degree. So the inflammation is worse in Alzheimer's. So it's as if everything is a lot worse. But in addition to that, there are these pathological uh, changes in Alzheimer's, which you do not see in um, aged individuals. And kind of like, you know, for people who mightn't be aware, like how do you, again, how do you model these things? So I'm assuming they're mice models as well. So with the models, but also how do you run your everyday experiments and how do you, you know, test the function of microglia, for example? So it was discovered maybe 40 years ago now that there were two genes which were significantly altered that impacted on the likelihood of getting Alzheimer's. This was APP, amyloid precursor protein, the protein that gives rise to the amyloid and its accumulation, and presenilin-1, an enzyme that's involved in the same pathway. And so it, these two genes were identified in different families where Alzheimer's was of the familial type. Now, this is the type of Alzheimer's that develops very early in life. And it turns out that this only accounts for a very small proportion of cases, less than 5% of cases of Alzheimer's disease. By far and away, the, greater fa- the greatest factor that impacts on, or, or that, that provides a risk for Alzheimer's is age. Anyway, the mouse models are designed with overexpression of those two genes. So most mouse models are based on that sort of thing. And can I tell you that we, everybody recognizes that this is suboptimal because we're looking at a form of Alzheimer's disease, if you can say such a thing, that occurs in only 5% of cases or even less. So it's not perfect by any means. Now, there are models that are being developed and that try to mimic the situation a little bit better. They're not as widely used and everybody still believes that amyloid buildup is a key factor in Alzheimer's. And so there's still the propensity to stick with those original models despite their problems. So what happens? These uh, The animals that we use overexpress these two genes, the human form of these two genes. And as a result of that, bit by bit, as they get older, amyloid accumulates. So at maybe five months of age in these mice, you will see um, the development of plaques, small plaques appear. The mice live until they're 20 to 22 months or 24 months of age. And so as time goes by, things get worse and worse and worse. So what we generally do is we look at different ages to try and map changes or track changes. And so uh, that's, that's one thing that's common. We also uh, give drugs at different ages of the, in these animals. So we, some people analyze electrophysiology, like I mentioned to you before, and we used to do that, but we don't do that anymore. Instead, we look at the behavior of these animals. And after the behavioral analysis has been done, we take the tissue, Sometimes we look at, we prepare individual microglial cells for analysis, for example, of the metabolism. Sometimes we take sections of the brain and so on. So there's a range of analysis that we can do of these animals at different stages of their life and compare them 
with controlled animals, which don't have this uh, modification. And, and I know you're also interested in how the microglia, are they mirroring the function of inflammatory macrophages, not in the brain, which is, I work on macrophages, so I'm very interested in, in the whole link there. And do you think that could be a biomarker? Wouldn't it be fantastic if it was? So yeah, the, the two cells, as you know, are, are, are similar in the sense they're professional phagocytes, for example. And, and so that's a, that's a key thing. They also produce uh, cytokines that are similar to one another. They both... Um, act as antigen-presenting cells, um, but, but microglia less so, obviously, because by and large, you don't have T-cells in the brain. Now, mm. they, the, the numbers increase in the brain as time goes by. So um, it would be really good if we were able to, to use macrophages as a model of what's going on in the brain. And so we have actually taken... Uh, cells, BMDMs from animals, and we've got macrophages or monocytes from humans, and we've done experiments to see if we get similar types of changes with similar uh, triggers. Now, I wish I could tell you that the um, results are are clear-cut. They are not, but what we do know for sure is that the macrophages taken from one cohort of individuals with Alzheimer's disease do show some of the changes that we've shown in um, microglia from these animal models. For example, they have a change in their metabolic profile. So these samples are hard enough to get. You know, there are ethical issues associated with um, getting blood samples from people. Mm. Um, So we have done some um, experiments in mice, though. And, And one of the things that's interesting about the macrophages is the macrophages also end up in the brain in greater numbers with age and in Alzheimer's. And we believe they contribute to the inflammation that is occurring at the same there anyway. And like, this might be a a silly question, but like, are are there any treatments for Alzheimer's that target neuroinflammation at the minute? I suppose the the most positive thing I can say about that is that if you look at the uh, drugs that are in phase three trials, what you will see is that approximately half of them are still trying to tackle the amyloid buildup. So 20% of drugs trying to tackle tau, the tau buildup, this is the other protein. And then of the remainder, there's a miscellaneous bunch. There might be even 25 or 30% of drugs uh, designed to target the Mm. neuroinflammation. So that part of the story is definitely gaining more traction. And especially since that discovery in about 2014, that various polymorphisms in uh, genes that code for proteins that are involved in inflammatory function are actually increasing the risk of Alzheimer's. So that I would anticipate is going to increase. So there'll be, I think in maybe five years time, there will be more drugs targeting inflammation in trials than there are at the moment. But there is still an increasing number, which is good news. Yeah, no, definitely. No, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating area. Um, but I, I suppose I, I also want to ask you some kind of broader questions about academia in general. So why, what do you find the most stressful aspect of your job? And maybe since the transition to becoming a PI, was that, was that tough? And then also kind of what do you love about research? Well, the transition to from being a postdoc to PI for me was not that complicated, to be honest, because I um, had a lot of experience in research, so I knew what I was. I, I knew what I was about. I had already supervised um, people in a job where I was devoted entirely to research, because when I was in in um, London, I didn't do any teaching except 
the odd lecture in Royal College, sorry, in the Royal Free Hospital to medical students. So I did that occasionally, but that was just for fun. It wasn't a job, you know, I was all the time in research. So I, I didn't have the stress postdocs often have when they transition because I already had a very long period of experience in research. I knew what I was about, I knew how to write grants, and I didn't have that issue. So my issue was more to do with the fact that I had to cut away back the time that I was spending on research and now start figuring out how to teach the mo- in the most effective way that I could. So I spent a lot of time at the beginning preparing lectures, obviously, and you know becoming familiar with areas that I had studied in the past but had totally forgotten about and wasn't up to speed on the latest developments in those areas either. You know, I was, I, I was a neuroscientist at this stage, not a physiologist exactly. Mm-hmm. So I had to, to uh, get to grips with that. So uh, was that stressful? Not really, because I have to say that, you know, given any opportunity at all, I get interested in things very easily and academic things really easily. And it just is something that I, I just enjoy. So, and I love teaching, absolutely love teaching. So and love interacting with students and love the research. So what do I hate? The admin. <laughs> absolutely hate it. I hate filling forms that where, where, where people already know the answers, you know. This is what drives me crazy. You fill a form, and then in a week's time, you get another form, and it's the very same information, except maybe related to something slightly different. So that drives me insane. It's an awful waste of time, in my view. Another thing that, that now this, this is a little bit unfair, but I'm going to give you an example of another thing that I consider to be a waste of time. In the last while, I've been teaching um, sensory physiology, and one of the things that I have to teach is the eye and vision. Great subject, you know. But I have to write a half page on what I'm hoping to achieve when I'm lecturing about the eye and vision. Now, I would have thought that's fairly obvious. That I want, at the end of it all, the students to understand what the eye looks like, the shape of it, the anatomy of it, and what it does in order for you to be able to see. Now, why do I have to write a half a page about that? It's the sort of thing that drives me absolutely crazy. I'm very impatient. And so those things are, are just, for me, a waste of time. Yeah, so, no, it's, it seems quite pointless. Yeah, but it's necessary. Um, you know, so there's an, an awful lot of things like that that you that you wonder. You know, who is actually benefiting from this? <laughs> and you you write reports, and honestly, you wonder who is going to read this, and why would they read it? You know, so there's a lot of stuff like that that I think is an awful waste of time. So the stress that's associated with um, being an academic for me, has always been the pull on your time for things that I believe are not really very important and taking time away from things that are, like when when you're supervising a final year student, for example, I like to spend a lot of time with students if I can, Mm. but I have to still fill in stupid flipping forms. (laughs) Anyway, sorry, I shouldn't... No, I think a lot of people will kind of resonate with that as well. I I feel like this is, although generally when I ask people kind of what their most stressful aspect is, it is grant writing or things like that. So I haven't heard that response yet. 
No, no, no. I actually love, um, I love developing ideas. Now, you know, and, and if I had to write grants about the science of something, I would write them all day long. But when you are preparing to write a grant, you have to also write a budget, which I hate. Um, and I hate money, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, so anything to do with that, I can't stand, but I have to do it. I understand that. And you also have to write stuff that I think is pretty nonsensical as well. A little bit of form filling going on there. So if it was just the science, it would, you know, it's, it's what we are trained to do. We're trained to be researchers, to impart knowledge. That's the research aspect the educator aspect. They're the things that we're good at. And then there's all this stuff that certainly I'm not good at. Um, and I have lumped them all together under the heading admin. Another kind of question I do tend to ask people is, you know, how did you juggle, I suppose, family life with academia? You know, I know you've, you're, I actually spoke to Ivana, your daughter okay. there, about two weeks ago for the podcast. So, you know, in the earlier days, kind of how did you juggle that or, or was that a stress? In London, we decided that we would set up the childminding in a way that allowed us to be least stressed, I suppose. So we got a fantastic person who came to the house and minded the children in our house. Well, mm -hmm. uh, of course, we only had one for four years and then, then Ivana turned up. So we also lived very close. Both of us lived very close to where we worked. So by that time, I had moved house and moved job. And we were, were living in North London. And it, you, know, you could get to where I worked in five minutes if you drove or 15 if you cycled because it was uphill um, and walking half an hour, you know, it really was very, very easy. And so I made a decision that children were small. I would work more or less nine to five or half eight to five or something like that and come home spend time with them, and then when they're in bed, go back to work again. Not go back physically to work, mm. but work from home. So for years and years and years, that's what both my husband and I did. Both of us would have, have been sure that the children had one or other of us there always from five or half five in the evening, and then when they're in bed, go back to work. Yeah, because I was kind of asking Ivana what it was like to have two such... I suppose, distinguished scientists as parents, you know, so yourself and then Kingston Mills, who people will know is, is your husband. And she was saying there's a lot of science conversations around the dinner table and stuff. But then I suppose she's doing brilliant things over at Harvard now as well. So it's a bit of a dynasty in the family. Well, in a kind of a way. And our son, of course, thinks he's the no only normal one before. Um, but uh, yeah, so, he, so we would, I suppose, have spoken about science. But to be honest, you know, I, I don't know what, how it appeared to her, but to us it seemed normal enough, you know, that we'd be talking about our work. Mm. But um, they, the two of them used to laugh when we'd be talking about interleukin-1 beta. They all, you know, they were very small when they first heard the term interleukin-1 beta. And they spit at each other now when they say it, you know, because they just remember that it was a topic of conversation. Well, often, I suppose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, but, um, yeah, yeah. so it, I think uh, we were lucky because we had a very good person in London to look after the children. And then when we came back here, um, we lived in a place that was very close to their school. So I took them to school. I'd wheel the bike 
taking them to school and then they go to school, which started earlier than some of the other schools anyway. And I'd cycle into Trinity and then cycle home. And again, we had the same business. We always were home at a time that was appropriate. We always cooked. One or other of us always cooked so that we always ate together. And, you know, as a result, the two of them are good cooks, actually. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Ivana actually did say that, like about the interleukin one beta when when I was talking to her. So that that's very funny, actually, that you mentioned it. Um, but kind of one of the last questions uh, I'm going to ask you, Marina, is you know, if you weren't a scientist, where do you think your life would have ended up? What career do you think you would have had? And well, it would have to be something sciencey or along those lines. You know, my mom was a pharmacist, so a pharmacy possibly. My dad, a vet, I, I did uh, think veterinary would be nice, but I was ridiculed by the farmers that I asked in a, a very small survey before I made a decision. I suppose medicine might have been a possibility mm. because I, I, I love the questions that medicine, medicine throws up. Um, I'm not sure about the practitioner aspect of it, you know. So, mm. yeah, so, but it would definitely be along the science line. I, there's just no possibility whatsoever that I would, I would be doing anything other than the dole, maybe. I don't know if I couldn't get a job in science. On the dole. <laughs> Um, so I suppose yeah that's it I mean thank you so much again for, for coming on to chat to me no bother at all Megan and thank you for asking me so that's it for another week of Unraveling Science a big thanks again to our sponsor Biosciences and if you like this episode please rate and review on Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts